Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is a place to discover more about emerging technology and offshore renewables and how we meet our future energy needs. My name is Lynn mcintosh Green, and I'm a Programme Manager for the Offshore Wind Growth Partnership, a programme funded by industry and delivered by ORE Catapult. In this episode, we're doing things slightly differently. I'm live at the first UK offshore wind supply chain spotlight event at the Queen Elizabeth II Conference Centre in London. The event today brings together senior political and industry leaders, investors and procurement specialists, with many of the UK's leading supply chain currently benefiting from ORE Catapult and OWGP supply chain growth programmes. We've got a packed agenda for the day, and in this episode, we hope to give you a flavour of some of the exciting opportunities that are coming out of the UK's offshore wind supply chain. So, without further ado, let's get started. We're going to kick things off with a quickfire interview from one of our OWGP-supported companies. I'd like to introduce to you William Cooley, the Managing Director from Exo Engineering. Hello, it's uh, great to have you here. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. Yeah, very excited about today's event. So are you able to just give our listeners a, a short introduction to Exo Engineering? So Exo Engineering introduces artificial reefs as scour protection. So we're looking at biodiversity net gain whilst also achieving scour protection. So William, could you maybe expand upon which parts of the offshore wind life cycle your product can be applied to? We look to service the entire chain, so from landfall side all the way to uh, wind farm base, including the, the whole cable route. And how have OWGP worked with you so far? So we've received OWGP grant support to develop our concept further and particularly look at mass deployment and mass scale manufacturing. So moving away from small scale prototyping to actually getting this done on the ground and mass scale. Fantastic. And how are things progressing there? Is it, is it going well? Yes, it's going very well. We're uh, very much on target. We've recently done a testing program of over 100 units, which uh, we, we tested at Portside Facility and uh, now moving into our late winter program, hopefully after the Christmas break. And what are you looking forward to most today and what are you hoping to get out of the conference today? So very excited that there is uh, investment today, lots of relevant people here today to talk about. I think collaboration is the key for us, working together with other organisations and uh, getting in with uh, developers at the early stage and the design stage. We can talk to them about design specifications. So we're very happy to talk to developers and clients about how to adjust our design and particularly match specification so that the product is definitely right for them. That sounds exactly what the industry needs. I think you probably heard this, but ahead of the Spotlight event, ORE Catapult published the Offshore Wind Supply Chain Confidence Survey Report, and it reached out to the offshore wind industry to gain better insight into the challenges faced by the supply chain in developing innovation to meet the needs of offshore wind. Essentially, it was measuring the level of confidence in future growth of the sector. What are your thoughts on the confidence of the growth in the sector? And do you see opportunities for your company and the wider supply chain? We're very excited about the prospects in the, the coming years. And I think there is yeah, massive growth uh, expected within the sector. Also with combinations of net environmental gain or net biodiversity gain. 
climate impacts. We really would like to see the kind of marine eco-engineering move forward and establish themselves into the sector. And, and you guys have a really critical part to play in that with what you're offering to the market. So that sounds like a really positive way forward. Yeah, yeah very excited about the future and uh, expecting very large growth. Excellent. Well, William, thank you so much for joining us this morning and giving us a quick overview on EXO Engineering. Please, can you let people know how they can find out more about EXO and how they might get in touch with you? We have a website, exoengineering.co.uk. Also, we the ODBGP project is called the Living Wind Farms Project, so go and look that up online as well. Great. Thanks for coming along today and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you so much. We're now going to join the next session in this morning's Spotlight Agenda, where Ori Caspol's Director of Research and Technical Capabilities, Christina Garcia Duffy, interviews Offshore Wind Champion and Chair of the Offshore Wind Acceleration Task Force, Tim Pick. I'm here in conversation with Team Peak. Team Peak was appointed Offshore Wind Champion back in May, and I understand you've been meeting lots of people and organisations and stakeholders since then in your role to try to accelerate the deployment of offshore wind in the UK. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Christina. Nice to be here. There was a question in the Slido this morning to say, what does Steam actually do? <laughs> so I thought I would continue with the tune. You know, we've heard Mike from Innovate UK talk about Bon Jovi and uh, Catherine from the High Value Manufacturing Catapult mention ABBA. So I thought I'd mention Elvis Presley and the fact that you're here to have a little less conversation and a little bit more action, right? So that we hopefully move to a queen world of we are the champions. Well, it's great to have you here. The sessions this morning covered, well, general opportunities that we have around grid, around consenting and supply chain. We then had Tony and team talk about the role of late stage R&D. And finally, we talked about supply chain growth and competitiveness. And I wanted to ask you, what's your key takeaway from the discussions this morning? Thanks, Christina. And I guess we'll come back to that question of what does the champion actually do? Because it was in my first week in this role, I was invited for breakfast with the Danish ambassador. Obviously, they have a huge interest in UK offshore wind from a, from a supply chain perspective. And it was quite a tough question when he sat me down, gave me a poached egg and said, what do you actually do? <laughs> um, I think I've got a handle on it now. Look, there's loads of takeaways from this morning. A lot of them resonate with discussions across the industry. I noted down four things that came strongly through, not necessarily new points. Sustainable profit for the supply chain. It's very interesting when you see this global marketplace, huge targets announced by many countries around the world. On the same day, you see newspaper articles about job losses in the supply chain. It's a really odd dynamic going on there. So I think that point's you know, well taken. There was an interesting point about supply chain being reactive or proactive. And I sometimes boil this down to project-based versus market-facing. Mm. And I think there's a real tendency sometimes to only invest against actual orders from projects, which come quite late in the development cycle, as opposed to looking at, this is a massive market in the UK. Surely people can, ad can invest against an addressable market of that scale, plus the export opportunities. So that, that was my second point. Third one, Dave Walker talked about testing for flow. I mean, this point about wobbling substations floating in the sea. 
I went up to um, the Blythe Catapult test facility and saw the testing facilities there. And when you look at the scale of that equipment, and then you realize that's just for a fixed bottom, how the hell would you test a wobbling version of that? There's a real need for that somewhere. It would be great, obviously, if we could do that in the UK. And I think the last point, and one of the interesting things coming into an industry cold, relatively cold as I did, I came from a background of basically doing projects as a lawyer for the last 27 years, mostly in the oil and gas sector. So the legal industry, people would say, which is true, came to diversity and inclusion really late. It's been very hard for those businesses to reverse back into diversity and inclusion. So the fact that the offshore wind industry's got that going from day one, I think is really important. So that's my four takeaways. I'm just going to flag my... I know I trailed this point about attracting a troll. So when my first big engagement in this role was Manchester Global Offshore Wind, I haven't had a public-facing role like this before. It's quite scary. And I, put, I post online afterwards, and I think it's still my key takeaway from this entire industry is the positivity of the people. Everyone knows they're doing good work here. It's innovative. It's good for society. It's good for climate. Your journey since the beginning, did you have any preconception on supply chain and innovation before you joined? And if so, have your perceptions changed and how? In terms of offshore wind, I was like, so I come from, funnily enough, the next door constituency to Graham Stewart. So I come from a town called Driffield in East Yorkshire. And so I had some awareness of offshore wind from particularly from the Siemens factory which has spilled out a lot of high-paid jobs into the region my my sister-in-law teaches at a fee-paying school near Hull and that's attracted a lot of kids from the factory's employees so I had some awareness of it but I guess I didn't really have an appreciation of the fact that a lot of the deployment has been done from overseas so that we don't have the hardcore manufacturing here and I really hadn't understood and this is probably because I spent most of my life in a different industry and half of it in Abu Dhabi, not in the UK. I hadn't really understood our lack of port infrastructure and how key that is. So we heard Ian talking about what they're doing at NIG. It's quite a unique operation there. And actually the, the, the lack of our sort of core port infrastructure, because if you think about it, it becomes a sort of hub for large-scale activity. And then you get a hinterland with smaller businesses coming into the supply chain. So... I guess the big surprises to me were where, where is the manufacturing actually located and the really crucial importance of investing in our ports and how we're, I wouldn't say hampered by privatisation, but we're, we have to deal with the legacy of privatisation relative to some of the European countries. And what it struck me as well, it's a lot about vision, foresight and sometimes taking the risk, taking the leap and investing in advance of need. In your time as offshore wind champion, I'm sure you've met you know, hundreds, even thousands of organisations. And uh, you know, I'd love to get a hold of that log of people that you've, uh, you've the gathered. The log is here. <laughs> Pretty tall. <laughs> yeah. That's my big black book. Out of meetings, events, stakeholder visits, could you tell me about a, a time where you've experienced you know, the, the amazingness of the sector when you've been in awe of what we do? Look, this thing has been so amazing from start to finish and what an absolute privilege to be dropped into a role like this and get to meet so many people in such a forward-looking industry. So I guess my first thing is to thank everyone for the sort of welcome um, and, and the engagement with the role because this thing is all about teamwork. You're not. I was trying to work out a football analogy for this role <laughs> 
and you know you're not really a player on the pitch you're basically like the mascot the guy dressed up as a frog or something that comes out <laughs> in front so but in terms of key things so obviously my first trip to an offshore wind farm this was westernmost rough you can almost see my, where my parents live from the ship and that's not even a big one right so um you know what i was struck by the beauty and the grace of these things they're massive but they're graceful mm. And I guess we had a bunch of people from DEFRA and Natural England with us. And you could tell the sort of, when you see them, you, you can see they're not that bad for the environment. That's a lawyer talking, not a scientist, but things are relative. I'd driven past Drax to get there, right? <laughs> it's a completely different story. So the first visit to a wind farm, definitely. And I think the second one that really sticks in my mind is going up to the catapult test facility and not not necessarily the size of the blades and stuff, they are amazing. It was this video that we were shown of when a blade was tested to destruction. And it was like a bomb going off. This thing was just unbelievable. You wouldn't want it to be in the room when that happened. Absolutely. And the size of it, from your perspective, rather than the outside, what has been so far your most proud of moment? <laughs> Look, there's, in this role, there are so many moments where you just think, why am I even here? Just really amazing experience. So uh, I sat down with Prime Minister Boris Johnson the day after he quit. So I was in the building when Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid resigned. That was the prep meeting for a proposed briefing with him. The whole world fell apart there. People started looking at their phones, etc. But he kept the meeting the day after he quit. He was still the Prime Minister. It was actually a really useful thing because, funnily enough, some of the stuff I said in that meeting is now being played back through the system. You just have to keep getting your points across. So that, obviously, a total privilege and something to be, you know, I just felt so honoured to be doing that on behalf of the industry, briefing him on offshore wind and the challenges and stuff. We had a supply chain roundtable at number 10. Some of you in the room were there. I mean, it was an amazing event. This was when Greg Hans was the Energy Minister. There was a very, very frank conversation about the CFD and what it does to the supply chain. And you, Greg Hans wrote lots of notes, and it was just a, such a sort of frank but pleasant event. And then the drama on the steps outside number 10 afterwards with group shots and individual shots and stuff. It was so fun. <laughs> and I think the last thing, and look, this is much more me personal pride, giving that keynote speech at the Aberdeen Floating Wind Conference, my manic minor speech, that was something so far outside my comfort zone. I was crying inside doing that speech. Um, and when I came off, I was absolutely buzzing with adrenaline. So, um, yeah, it was completely new to me to do something like that. So from a purely personal perspective, speaking to 800 people was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Is the UK offshore wind in a unique position right now, you think? I think so. I mean, a lot of the speakers have talked about this, but we... We're at a point, and I think Dan made a really good point, we're hitting some of the challenges first for, in terms of Western economy, in terms of the deployment relative to our grid, deployment relative to our other generation capacity. We're just hitting these things first, but it gives us a fantastic first mover advantage. So we talk a lot about the first mover advantage in floating offshore wind, and I think it's more than just we're there first. It's giving us an opportunity to have another look at how we think about our ports and our supply chain. Hopefully we'll see that come through with a slightly different policy in the Celtic Sea leasing around from Crown Estate. It's, it's given us that second chance to... It's, it's interesting, the Minister and I often talk about this point about if you just carry... You can't expect a different outcome if you do exactly the same thing again. That's a sort of definition of madness, right? <laughs> so um, 
there's got to be some tweaks to the system for floating wind if we are to really see the benefits of supply chain growth, jobs, etc. in that sector. So that's one. And then, as we said earlier, grid, you can be negative about grid, rate limiting factor, not moving quickly enough, etc. I totally get that, and I regularly give that speech. Um, but equally, there's a huge opportunity there. And this idea of a joined-up grid, hydrogen, carbon pipelines, the entire new energy system, we've hit it first, and we've got a real opportunity to lead the world in it. We're bound to get some stuff wrong, but the innovation that comes there, the opportunities um, are enormous. And I guess we're well-placed as the UK. You know, we were the inventors of model-based systems engineering, systems of systems thinking. We are right there, well-placed to look at the whole landscape and, and bring it forward. If you had one wish for 2023, what would it be? Kind of what you would ask Santa on a list. <laughs> you know, it's funny, I was asked this at a conference the other week and I said I wanted a time machine to go back and have another look at how the grid was privatised. I'm not going to go there this time. Um, obviously, number one is just some political stability. I mean, to be in a role for six months and see two changes of government is a bit odd. Hmm. We need political stability. Ideally, the minister stays exactly where he is and his mindset stays the same. We get the levelling up and energy bills through Parliament. That gives you the planning reforms that you need. They need implementing, but it's, you know, you've got to change the legislation first. So how many have I got wishes? <laughs> um, a bit more progress on this point that Andrew Ells made very clearly about if you're the government, there's more to value than just price. And that's a message that I think many people are pushing in the system. Clearly, the government likes the CFD. It's a flagship policy from on this one-dimensional metric. It's done extremely well. But is there room for another metric or two in there, a broader definition of value? And then finally, probably a more interesting thing for this year, and it was a point I think that Catherine Bennett made about the number of bodies in this, in this ecosystem. End of March is the end of my mandate and looks like being the end of the OAT mandate. The idea being that we merge back into OIC and we get OIC reinvigorated as the core body in, through which industry engages with government. So if you think, why, why did you even need OAT if OIC was, being, was working effectively? That's another wish that that's, we have a smooth transition from the end of March into April with the functioning, functioning engagement between industry and government in the right forum. And I've mentioned this to you before, that to me that... That's the start of it. It puts the, the plan on the ground so that things can kick start. I guess fast forward 10 years, and if we were to look back at the actions, your role in this, at what the sector is doing right now, what would you like for people 10 years from now to think about the actions you and the sector, we are all taking today? Well, look, obviously, looking back 10 years, you'd want to see that the development cycle for offshore had actually reduced back from 10 years to five. That's the core <laughs> task of the task force, and that's the core reason I'm here. And I'm used to being measured in six-minute units over the last 27 years. So, you know, <laughs> a proper KPI is quite important. Yeah, look back on, were we successful in getting the development time down? Clearly, that means a big kickstart to the grid improvement process. But I'm quietly confident that we will see that that upward trend start to decline. So I think that's that's a sort of OAT on paper type metric. I think there's 
there's a really important metric here about that this whole port supply chain growth jobs side of it that the minister talked about. So if we look at the opportunity for South Wales coming out of the Celtic Sea leasing round, you know, do we want in 10 years' time to see loads of floating wind deployed there, but it's all been towed in from Portugal, like in Cardin? Mm -hmm. Or do we want it an indigenous assembly, fabrication, etc., industry built around the ports there, nice ecosystem of SMEs supporting those, etc. I mean, I know which one I would prefer. And I think that's, that would be also a very good sign of success if you could see that sort of transformation. And I think we would all agree. Thank you very much, Tim, for your time. And I'll ask the audience to please give you a big hand of applause. Okay, and back in the studio. What an insightful conversation between Christina and Tim this morning. Next up, I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Loudon, Senior Technology Acceleration Manager and Programme Lead of the Launch Academy. Alex, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about your role in Casco and an overview of what the Launch Academy Programme is? Absolutely. So I've been at Casco for about five years now, and I look after the service offering that we provide to startups and early stage companies who are right at the start of their journey of bringing new technologies, products and services into the offshore wind market. And a really key part of that is the Launch Academy Technology Accelerator program that we run. Um, it's a nine-month program sponsored by industry, and it's all about breaking down barriers to commercialization that companies are facing when they're bringing game-changing products to market. Excellent. And I believe the programme is now about to select its third cohort to carry out the Launch Academy programme, is that right? Yeah, that's right. We've got four fantastic sponsors on board for the next year. Um, BP, Ersted, Equinor and RWE have all brought a really interesting selection of challenges for companies to apply to. Uh, and we've seen 40 companies submit applications and we're rummaging through them at the moment, trying to figure out which ones to invite to the next stage of the process. Fantastic. And just from your perspective, can you give us three of the biggest achievements that you've seen from companies who've taken part in the programme? Yeah, I mean, the current cohort two has been uh, a fantastic hotbed of achievements, really. I think the things that really stand out to me are where we've seen really exciting collaborations between the big sponsoring companies and these early stage companies who are bringing technologies forward. So two really good examples of that are Jet Connectivity, who have secured a contract with Scotch Power Renewables in relation to their 5G boys, bringing communications to offshore wind farms before there's any assets in place. And Master Filter, who are working with BP to validate their oil filtration technology and prove that it works and can be delivered to an offshore wind farm. And I think probably the third standout for me is just seeing the, the amount of grants and investment that the companies on the cohort managed to bring in. It's been really phenomenal to see the successes of the entire cohort in that aspect, because it's really helping them to bring the capital in to accelerate their technologies to market. Wow, that's really fantastic. And it's great to hear about those specific examples as well, where companies have have really capitalised on the opportunity and, and have, are now reaping the rewards of that with, with um, higher tiers of the supply chain and developers. So this afternoon, I believe the Launch Academy is hosting Ready for Investment pitch sessions alongside WGP to shine a spotlight on some of the leading innovators looking to push the products and services to the next level of investment. What do you hope to see come out of the sessions for Launch Academy companies that are participating there? 
So the, the ready to invest section should be really exciting. Access to capital is a really big challenge for companies at the early stages of their journey. It's how they build their teams. It's how they build prototypes and ultimately prove to their customers that their technology is worth buying. And so what we're trying to do is build a platform that we can use to showcase the companies that we're working with to a relevant audience of investors and hopefully just start to see some of those connections be made which is going to lead to companies securing the investment that they're targeting and ultimately leads to some really exciting growth trajectories for these companies. I'm really excited about the sessions myself and I can't wait to hear more about how that goes this afternoon. Thanks, Alex. I'll let you go and prepare for your next session. The final person I'll be speaking to today is Ian Milne from Balmoral. Thanks for joining us today, Ian. I believe you travelled all the way from snowy Aberdeenshire, is that right? Absolutely, snowy and icy. Yeah. Oh dear. Well, I'm so glad to have you here today. And um, would you like to give us a quick overview of Balmoral and your work in offshoreland? Absolutely. Yeah. So Balmoral has been established now for well over forty years, and you probably tell by the subtle accent, you know, from Aberdeen, as we already said, with the snow and ice. We've been brought up in, in the oil and gas market, and we're market leaders in all things subsea. Really, over the last kind of four or five years, our transition into offshore wind has certainly been a great progression for the company for all things about protection, for insulation, and for, for buoyancy uh, solutions. So our offering now within fixed and floating offshore wind is significant that every component for cables and mooring is something that Bamoral can manufacture from Aberdeen. That's fantastic. And to be able to manufacture from the UK, from Aberdeenshire, is another excellent strength here. Goal. I believe Bamoral were one of the first companies to take part in the Fit for Offshore Renewables programme. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience in the programme and how it might have shaped your engagement in the offshore wind industry? So for us, I mean, when the decision was made, it's more of a progression than a decision. The progression was was kind of evolved into offshore wind. It seemed to be a, a mass of companies and associations and bodies, and you're trying to see what the, you know, how you fit into that market and if you can see the wood from the trees. And that's why we kind of selected the Fit for Offshore Renewables campaign as the one to invest our time into, particularly for, you know, that transition of skills. And it really I kind of pushed you to identify strategy. You know, everyone thinks you're already very good at what you're doing. And I include the model with that. But it opened your eyes to say, what's the risk portfolio? What's your strategy here? How are your internal manufacturing processes? What's the potential? Who's already working? Things that you would do internally as a strategy anyway, but the program definitely kind of cemented and made sure that was kind of pushed right organisation, particularly with all the key kind of senior management stakeholders. And you mentioned at the top there that Balmoral had such roots in the oil and gas industry, but it's widened its scope to include more, more and more of the wind activity. How important is it for companies that are looking to transition into offshore renewables from oil and gas to have access to support from programmes such as Fit for Offshore Renewables, do you think? I think it's quite critical. Don't be assumptive that everyone knows who you are and knows what you do already or has a full understanding of that kind of oil and gas market. For us, I mean, there's been several occasions where maybe relatively naively I've said, oh yeah, I mean from Balmoral. And, you know, they've looked at me as if to say, what, the castle? You know, and it's been, no, you've actually had to take them on that journey. So I also think that the knowledge of the oil and gas companies will be so critical to the development and the success of offshore wind within the UK and also the wider global regions. I mean, there's a lot of things that are tried and tested. If you look at floating offshore wind, for example, you know, everyone sees that as the new technology and that's the risky one. No, it's fine. You know, back to Aberdeen, you know, we're, we're big advocates for the Northeast here and 
sort of see dynamic environments have been in operation for 40 years, you know, and the technology the model has for our floating solutions around the cables hasn't changed. The same same clamping technology, you know, the same patents exist and the same certified bodies are, are very, very transferable there. And it's through that, you know, innovation and through that track record is why we've been quite successful so far, I'm sure. That thanks for highlighting actually the importance of that transition of skills and knowledge, understanding, experience, because I think that's going to be really critical to UK's success in offshore wind. So Ian, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, it's been a pleasure having you here and we look forward to seeing you present later on in our stream ready for market. A busy afternoon indeed, yeah. Thanks Ian. Thanks. Okay, that's a wrap on our Spotlight event and our re-energised podcast. I'm away now to join my colleagues from across the industry at our drinks reception sponsored by Equinor. But before I head off, you can find out more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult and now on Instagram at ore.catapult.org.uk.